You're listening to the Illinois Farm Talk podcast. Here are your hosts, Ben and Garth. Hello, I am Ben Calcaterra, and I am here with Garth Reynolds, and we are here to bring you the next episode of Illinois Farm Talk by the Illinois Pharmacists Association, brought to you by the law office of Joseph J. Bogdan. In this episode, we will interview a member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and discuss how the vaccine priority groups and candidates will be considered. There's a lot of misinformation out there, so let's put all those rumors to rest and get get going on this. Hello, Garth. Hello, Ben. So today we're going to have a great interview. We've been um, talking about CDC's uh, advisory committee, how they're going to bring out the rules and the regulations and how it's going to be distributed, who's going to get it, how they're going to be chosen. So much information out there. So we've got this interview coming up in just a few moments. We're not going to waste any time. We're going to jump right into it. We're going to talk with Dr. Stephen Foster, and he's going to, to put to rest some of the rumors that we've been hearing. He's going to give us a lot of information, going to give us how the ACIP guidelines were drafted, how they talked it out, what the process is. For some of you out there, what is ASIP? He's going to talk to about that, too, and let us know exactly what they are and what they do. So without further ado, let's just jump into it. Here's our interview with Dr. Stephen Foster. Dr. Stephen L. Foster retired as a captain from the U.S. Public Health Service in 1998. Dr. Foster, a strong advocate for the pharmacist's role in public health, has served as the American Pharmacist Association Liaison Representative on the Center for Disease Control and Prevention Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices since 2001. He is a national faculty and writer with APHA's Pharmacy-Based Immunization Certificate Training Program and has been a featured speaker and author in many immunization education programs. Dr. Foster retired as a professor from the University of Tennessee College of Pharmacy in 2016. However, he continues his consulting work in the area of vaccines. Dr. Foster, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, we're really looking forward to this talk. Um, we're going to talk about the COVID vaccine that's, that's going to be hitting our pharmacy counters very soon, we hope. And we've got a lot of pharmacists out there asking questions they have a, there's a lot of information to disseminate, and, and, and we need to get the right information to the right people, uh, dispel all the myths out there and, and uh, misinformation that's floating around. So, I'm, you know, this is really timely, and I'm really excited to have you on. Um, I said in the introduction that you are part of the ACIP committee, the, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. How did that become? How did you get associated with that group? Following retirement, let me back up even set before that. Uh, I retired in 1998, but in 1996, APHA developed the immunization training program for pharmacists. And uh, Dr. John Gravenstein was the, the big driver for that, who was in the Army at the time. And uh, after I retired, I became, in, I was actually uh, asked by the University of Tennessee to teach the course for the for the school. So I got real involved in it. And, and I uh, actually, um, being a public health service officer, I, I had quite a bit of experience with vaccines already. So I started uh, calling them up and bugging them about the fact that, hey, this is not quite correct. You've got a mistake in this slide and all this stuff. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm one of their faculty members helping them put it together. 
Um, and after a couple of years of doing that, then I was, I was asked if I would be uh, interested in representing APHA uh, on the uh, ACIP as a liaison member, um, of which I was quite honored to, to accept that. And uh, that's kind of how I got into it. So it's been, uh, it's been a, a passion of mine ever since. That's excellent, and, and we're excited to have you uh, on that committee, uh, advising us, so to speak, from from their advisory. And um, just tell us, share with us just for a brief second, what is the role of ACIP? How, how does it work? What does it do? What is its function? And then g- going off that, how, how does the ACIP review the vaccine candidates? How does this all work in the landscape? Well, to start off, if you take a look at the name of it, ACIP or Advisory Committee, we we are an advisory committee to the CDC. We do not make the decisions for the CDC. We just give them our best advice that we can do. So the majority of what we do, there's no, uh, they don't have to accept it if they don't want to, but almost always they do accept the advice. The group is consisted of, consists of 15, uh, what we call the inner circle, 15 uh, appointed people who have no conflicts of interest, vaccine experts, whom, uh, whom actually are on a four-year rotation within the uh, ACIP, and they're the voting members. And then around the outside, they call the outer table, you have two different groups out there. One group is the, uh, the different, there's about eight representatives for, the, um, for different government organizations for like uh, the FDA, the DOD, the Indian Health Service, et cetera, a few of those types of, of organizations. And then they have the liaison members, which represent um, associations that have actually uh, applied to the ACIP um, group to actually become part of it. And that's actually how we got in is that we were invited to, as after we applied to uh, to become members of that after APHA did. Um, and so the, the outer group is non-voting. Um, and also, we don't really have a limitation on terms. Obviously, since I've been there since 2001, it's it's uh, um, it's up to the organization itself if they uh, how long that you can stay on it. Some some of them have people rotate off every so many years. Some people don't. Um, and actually, interesting enough, there's only one other person that has served continually on the ACIP uh, longer than I have. So it's uh, there's people that have come and gone quite a, that have been involved in a lot longer. But as far as continuous service. Uh, and actually, interesting enough, also, I've only missed one meeting in the uh, in all these years, in the 19-so years. And that happened, meeting, by the way, happened to be, I was invited by the Arkansas Pharmacy Association to, to go on a cruise. So I, <laughs> that was it's my a good excuse for not being there. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So anyway, um, knowing who the, the members are then is that they have working groups for each vaccine. That is actually in discussion. A working group will consist of uh, about half of the members being CDC employees, and then the other half being experts in that particular vaccine. Um, and so they um, they will actually meet more frequently than ACIP does, and they discuss in details the vaccine, uh, and then that is presented to the ACIP. The ACIP meets uh, well. Before COVID, we would we met three times a year. Now we've been meeting monthly um, since then. But the work group actually for the COVID group has been working, uh, our meeting weekly. Uh, and we have a representative of that too. It's Dr. Michael Hogue, who is the president of APHA. Um, 
and he is actually the working group representative and I'm kind of glad he's the one that meets weekly instead of me. So, um, but he's, he's actually very good, good representative. And so they, they basically talk about the details and the issues involved in the vaccines. While, while the FDA went, and the, this usually starts off on any vaccine right before it gets approved by the uh, FDA. Um, we don't see it along, you know, if some, something's in, in early phase one trials, we don't, we don't see that or discuss it. But as, as they're about ready to come to market, then they start bringing this back up to, to the committee and all. And so uh, we see things that are about ready to be marketed. We talk about the FDA will, will approve something based on safety and efficacy. We, on the other hand, will approve it based on, or not approve it, but recommend it based on safety and efficacy. But the other things such as cost effectiveness, uh, is there a need for the vaccine? Is there, what does the disease incidence look like? Those types of things. Uh, what group should we, should get it? Just because it's approved for every adult doesn't mean every adult should get it. So we discuss those types of issues too. And then we make a recommendation uh, based on the data that we get and the inner circle votes on that recommendation. And then the director of the CDC gets to decide whether he wants to accept it or not. That wasn't a short answer like you asked for though. <laughs> no, but very descript and that's, that's what we need. So I appreciate that. Garth, do you have something? Yeah, um, I, I, I want to uh, transition a little bit um, away from ACIP just for a moment and kind of talk about um, the vaccine approval process. I, you know, we've got a lot of healthcare providers, including pharmacists, who have some concerns, and I know the general public does too, about the revised uh, vaccine approval process that we are experiencing right now, especially with these COVID candidates. Um, what are your thoughts about how these uh, vaccine candidates have progressed so far? And um, do, do you feel that the revised process is still have enough safeguards um, for what we need from an FDA point of view and, I guess, from a CDC point of view? Well, I, I think the first thing I would probably do is, is correct you saying, I don't think we have revised uh, methods of doing this. The, the vaccines themselves um, go through phase one, two, and three clinical trials. Phase, obviously, phase one is a dosing type of trial. Phase two is in, in a larger number of people. And phase three is in very large groups of people. Um, in this particular case, the vaccines themselves have gone through um, a process where, uh, of, well, for example, the, the two, two vaccines that we're seeing are, are had between 30 and 40,000 people involved in the uh, studies and the phase three trials. Um, that is the same number of people, by the way, that was in the Shingrix trial. Um, so the, the number of people are there, but what has happened is that the the federal government has actually fed so much money into it that instead of having five sites where they do the trials, they have one in every city. So then they can get massive amounts of people at one time to go through the trials and then put the data together on that. But the trials are not shortened. They have the same requirements. Um, they normally would take a lot longer in order to enroll that number of people because of the increased funding through there. After the trials are done, and you've heard this is that the companies then apply to the FDA and they go between, they go to the, the, the VRBAC meeting, which is the Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee. And they're going to actually do that this um, next Thursday on the 10th to bring the first vaccine through there. And then following a week later, the, the second one, the first one by Pfizer, second one by Moderna. Um, and they go through the same rigorous um, evaluation through the FDA as any vaccine would do. The only thing is, is that they're, they're uh, they're putting more resources into it for the evaluation, 
and so that they don't have to take as long a time to do that because they have more people involved in the in the process. Um, they will not come out with a recommendation, a full recommendation at first. It comes out with an emergency use authorization. And that basically means is that there is a big enough need right now, an emergency now, that uh, they would feel that it's safe enough to use, but they will continue collecting data on it during the time that the, the vaccine is, is being used in its early phases. Um, one of the presentations that we, we just met uh, um, yesterday, <laughs> As, as one starts to retire, you lose track of time a little bit here, but we met yesterday and the, uh, there was a presentation on the safety monitoring that's going on with this. And it, it even includes a, a uh, it's not really an app, but it's more of a, a reminder uh, that would go on your uh, smartphones to, uh, to fill out a survey uh, for people through a text uh, process. Uh, for monitoring people that got the vaccine, saying, "Hey, it's, you've been a, it's been a week. You know, how are you? Uh, how are you doing now? Type of thing. Yeah, are you having any problems?" So they've added that part of it to it. Uh, also, with intense monitoring with VARES, which is the Vaccine uh, Adverse Events Reporting Program, uh, something that we're we all have. It's been around a long time. We've all used that, so they're going to be closely monitoring that. So it's a. Uh, it's it's really. I I don't feel like there's been any safety or any other. Um, compromise in, in the process that's going on. It's just they've had a lot more resources in order to do it. I really appreciate that uh, detailed response to it because I think a lot of people think that um, corners have been cut um, to help bring um, uh, these candidates forward because this is definitely record development from when they first sequenced um, the uh, the vaccine candidates back in January to, you know, here we are in December and I think that's just amazing with what we're seeing with the new mRNA technologies that we've been able to develop. And it's just to know that, yes, they have gone through the same scrutiny. They have gone through the same phases. And that, so they're, just as any other vaccine, it's not being that there's we're giving them a wave because of the current situation. We're still giving them the exact same scrutiny. And I think that's where, you know, you're seeing a lot of pressure in the press today because the United Kingdom approved the, the Pfizer vaccine. And everyone's like, well, why do we have to wait till next week for the exactly. FDA? Exactly. <laughs> you know, the, one of the mistakes we probably made was naming it Operation Warp Speed uh, because that, that kind of gave the impression that we were warping past the safety stuff. And we really have not. It's just we've increased the amount of studies that have gone on with it. Uh, it's been, to me, it's quite amazing to see that there's almost uh, – Every city in this country has got a, a study site where you could have signed up for it to do it. And by the way, we're talking about the first two vaccines that come out. There's a third one that's not too far behind. And there's there's about 150 to 200 vaccines and studies right now. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking uh, different ones. I'm saying so there's not like we're having a we're just stuck with this. It's just that this technology is quicker to to produce it um, right now. And correct me if I'm wrong, but um I believe that these first two candidates that we're talking about with Pfizer and Moderna, the first two mRNA vaccines that have been considered by ACIP, is that correct? That is correct. Those are the two. Well, actually, I'll, let me take that back. Um, we have not talked any details on the specific vaccine itself. What we have talked about has been a prioritization. And it's, it's the reason for that is because until the FDA approves it, and I'll be honest with you, we have not seen the phase three trial data that goes through straight to the FDA. And then once it's approved, then we get to see that data. 
So we're not really talking about a specific vaccine. We're talking about who in general right now is going to get vaccinated. Right. And I think that was the importance of the meeting yesterday. And I, and I did take the time to, to listen to it yesterday, which was the first time in a while that I've listened through a whole meeting. And uh, it was very interesting listening to the debate and the discussion about the prioritization groups. And I thought one of the things that was important um, was that there wouldn't be a general VIS, at least at this point, that they would be based off the individual EUA fact sheets for each of the of the manufacturers, and and which is a little bit different than what we're used to. But um, how do you feel um, the recommendation came yesterday with it just focusing right now with Phase One A on healthcare pre- personnel and long term care facility um, uh, residents? Well, um, if you imagine these discussions have been going on for months, so this is not a, a new discussion, and the way that the the ACIP uh, objectively looks at, at data is that they have what's called the evidence to framework or evidence recommendation framework. And this is a, a process that goes through with um, step by process that looks at different components of it. So we talk about uh, there's a question, com- a series of questions like how should we uh, give this vaccine when it comes out? Uh, and it's, it's, worded a little differently than that, but obviously. So they go through different things such as feasibility. They go through ethics. By the way, ethics review is a new component of it. It goes through uh, through quite a few different components. Let me see. A few of them would be um, what is, is there a public health problem? What are the uh, benefits and harms? What are the values? Is it going to be acceptable to the population? Is it feasible to use? Those types of issues. So we've been doing this for a while. We've been looking at the numbers and there is some you know, debate on who should get it first and who shouldn't. But, uh, and the debate was quite a while. In fact, it was interesting that the long-term care facilities were not in the first discussions uh, for for coming out. Um, they were kind of moved into it at a later point in this whole process. This phase that we're doing right now is phase 1A. And it's it means that it's, we're going to have a 2A, I mean, a, a uh, phase 1B and a phase 1C. Um, the phase 1B and C has been suggested, but it hasn't been actually uh, decided upon. But phase 1A is healthcare providers and long-term care facilities. The long-term care facilities are the were added to that because they have the the largest percentage of cases and deaths than any other group, um, and so they're the most vulnerable population that we have. And so um, it was felt like they, that should be included very early on. And the, the second component, again, is the healthcare providers. Um, and so that was the two groups that were decided for that. I'm sure the discussions will come very shortly about the next groups. Uh, there's been some proposals for the next group, uh, 1B being, um, and, and there's three more groups that are gonna talk about in one phase one, basically. One is essential, uh, essential workers that are out in the field. One is uh, those that are over 65 years of age, and the other group is those with uh, medical conditions that put them at higher risk. So those are the following groups that they're going to be discussing as, as it comes as it comes up. And I think, <clears throat> excuse me, and I think that's interesting because, you know, we, we had to do some prioritization groups, even for those that want to remember back during H1N1. Um, and, and some other times when we've had vaccine shortages, there's been prioritization groups and things like that, because, you know, even if once we get the EUA and 
ACIP does their recommendation. It's not like we're going to have doses for everybody. So as you said, you know, we have to go through this prioritization and looking at the risk. And I was glad to see that within the healthcare personnel that pharmacists were included, because I think a lot of people thought that we may have gotten shifted down to another priority group at first. And uh, I'm glad that we, we were, we were kept into that main group. Um, and I'll, I'll give Michael Hogue credit for that one because um, he, he jumped on that right at the beginning of the work group. When they first started that, he made certain that pharmacists were involved and well recognized as a healthcare provider um, particularly since the number of patients that we get to see throughout everything. But there's another reason for that is because they are really looking for pharmacists as being vaccinators. It's, if you remember from the H1N1, we did not get the vaccine till later on in the course of things. Uh, and so by, by holding back, we didn't actually do a lot of the work on that uh, administer the vaccine, so we didn't have access to it. Um, this one, they made sure that we're very much in, in the front of it and all. But I do have to add one more thing. Even though the, the CDC makes the recommendations where these go, um, we don't have any control of the vaccine once it hits the state. And so I do know that, that most states will probably follow what we say, but not all. Um, and there's been a few states that says, no, we're not going to do it that way, or we're going we're to change little parts of it and all. So it really becomes at that point up to the state on how they're going to handle uh, the, the minute specifics. And when you talk about supply, Right now, the first batch is uh, 20 million from Pfizer, 20 million doses from from uh, uh, Moderna, uh, 40 million doses. Well, that's that's just enough to cover really this phase 1A people, um, and it doesn't cover all of them. Uh, and if you think about it, you that covers them if there's two doses. Well, there's some places that are saying, well, we're going to hold back the second dose to make sure they get it. And other places they know we're going to give it all, and we're not going to hold the second dose. And, and that those type of things have not been really finalized by us. So I think each of the states have submitted a plan to the CDC uh, and they all have done that. So suppose ours are due by this Friday or something like that, but, but all of the plans then uh, will be telling how they will be distributing at that point. So it's, it's going to be a hodgepodge of things for a while and it's nothing's going to go as planned as you can imagine. Well, that's true. And that's one thing that we, as we've did discussions with our members and our listeners here is that, you know, just trying to get ahead of the game and understanding that we may need to pivot a lot as we start to roll this out. Cause everything we may told you last week, as things start to move, maybe need to be edited right away. Kind of like we were back in March and April with everything changing every week as we knew more and more about the virus. And as we know more and more about how the vaccine is rolled out, um, we'll have to adjust as as needed. The other complication that's going to be on this, and, and by the way, if you remind me later on, we need to talk about pharmacists role in this first phase. But um, the other thing, too, is that this numbers that we're talking about, that's assuming everybody wants it. Well, I will tell you that not everybody, in the, including the healthcare workers, want the vaccine, at least not initially. Some will say, I'll let someone else get it first. I'll get it later. Um, and so when they've done a survey of nurses, for example, that showed only 34% of them said they would take it. Um, and so we don't know whether that, and that will change over time, by the way, based upon once they see how safe it is and or effective it is or, or vice versa. Um, and so that's going to change all along too. So there may be more vaccine than we think because of people not wanting it, but maybe not. We just don't know how that's going to happen. And I think that's where, you know, you bring up a good point about people not wanting it. And we understand that um, people's hesitancies with anything new and um, 
but I think that's one thing is from, especially from a healthcare provider point of view, that we really have to take a look at what entrusts what's been done in the process to make sure that we had a valid candidate. It's gone through the same scrutiny because, you know, we've always had to deal with anti-vaxxers. And um, this year we're going to have it on a Himalayan mountain level. And um, I think that's going to be a bigger challenge as we start to roll out in the later phases with the general public. Um, because we can roll out this whole vaccine, and, but if we're not hitting target immunity, this could really delay the process back to normal. But. Well, and, and the other thing, too, is that and along with what you've said, is that the, the anti-vaxxers basically main comment has been, no one can force me to get this vaccine. Well, that's never been even a discussion part. And, and if you really think about it, the federal government doesn't force anybody to take a vaccine. Uh, the requirements for that usually comes at a local where a hospital says you can't work here unless you have the flu vaccine, for example. Um, but you really don't see that as a uh, an issue with, with being forced to get it, and particularly with an emergency use authorization. I mean, they're definitely not going to go through and force people to get vaccinated with that. Um, so it's uh, um, there's just a lot of things being said that, that uh, aren't quite true, but that's to be expected also. You had mentioned earlier about the pharmacist's uh, place in the vaccination community. So, so let's just talk about that. You know, pharmacists have been integral for many years. And with this whole process, we have had expanded service uh, ability for pharmacists to be able to vaccinate a larger group of, of patients. So let's talk about that for a minute. What, what is the pharmacist's role in, in laying out this, this COVID vaccination plan? Well, and if you ask the local pharmacists, they're not going to know anything because of the fact that it's still up to the state and the states haven't even spread out how they're going to do things when it comes to that. I will start off with phase 1A, which is the long-term care facilities. Pharmacy will be playing a major role in the distribution of vaccines for that. The uh, The federal government has a contracts with CVS Pharmacy and with Walgreens to provide um, these uh, services to the nursing homes. That the information on how that's going to happen has not been made public. Um, it it uh, has been a discussion. Uh, I heard that um, at least for one of the companies, they're going to they've agreed to do three visits at a nursing home, uh, spaced out at about the the duration of of in between the the two doses. That and by the way, for the mRNA vaccines, they are two doses. Um, but there's a, still a lot of the logistics stuff that we just don't know about. And and for the typical pharmacist that's working right now, um, it's going to be an issue with this first vaccine because the first vaccine requires super cold uh, refrigeration or freezing, and not too many facilities can handle that. Now, I know that that Walgreens and, and CVS have been working through the details, and by the way, they're not the only ones that, that uh, have to do this. Any, there was an, a phase where other people can apply, other pharmacies can apply to, to do the same thing too. So, they were the ones that just first ones with the contracts. And so uh, the issues with the typical pharmacist is this working in a uh, independent situation, say they're not going to have the super cold freezers. They may not get involved in this very first phase. They may be waiting to, to get one of the other ref, uh, vaccines that come out and they'll come out fairly shortly. Um, they don't have the storage and handling uh, requirements or difficulty that the other one does. Um, I would encourage, though, that all pharmacists, even if they don't do that, take the opportunity to get the first dose of vaccine 
for uh, uh, themselves and 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 get in there and get get the because it's going to take you a month to build immunity to it a month or, or five weeks between the doses one one of them is four weeks apart the other is three weeks apart and the studies were showing that the effectiveness studies were done one week after the, the last dose um, so we're talking four to five weeks um, and so the pharmacists should get in there and get these first doses so that by the time they are are getting involved in the administration they are protected for themselves so that's an important thing one question I have lingering is this new mRNA vaccine technology. Is is that going to be expanded in the future to maybe um, advance our our influenza seasonal vaccine uh, supplies and and make a a better flu vaccine or you know use this new technology in other areas um, to to make our whole vaccination landscape better. I certainly hope so. I think that's a, and that is a great question. Um, first of all, mRNA technology is not new. It's been around quite a while. It just hasn't been marketed yet. Um, they have studied it in flu vaccine, in Zika vaccine, and a few other the vaccines that have come up. But it, the biggest part that they've used it actually has been in in uh, cancer therapy, where the way the way this vaccine works is that the messenger RNA. Uh, is coated with an antigen. And in the case of cancer vaccines, it might be the cancer cells. Uh, once it's uh, injected into the person, then it's used, that, that coating produces an antigen which goes to the surface of the cell and it is then antibodies are made against it. So the technology with cancers where it made antibodies against the cancer cells so that it could, could uh, clear up the, the cancer in that manner. So it's, there's quite a few studies going on on that and stuff but this kind of brought uh, at the time that the, it was decided to do this it was like we need every technology that's out there right now to try it and see that that we can do this the advantage also of mrna is that it's fast the problem with it is the storage and handling as you can see um, but there is uh, that's not the only type of technology that's new that this is just the first ones that are coming out um, we may see more, but I really hope that this really does prove to be uh, an effective way, and particularly in the fact that if you look how fast we developed this, for any other emerging disease that could come about, if we could create something this quick, it would be a, a heck of an advantage to doing it. So, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, because I, I think that it's been interesting to kind of read through all the different vaccines um, and the methodologies that uh, different companies are looking at. I mean, I think there's even one in here, I think, in either in the United States or in Canada that's using uh, tobacco plant proteins. And um, I, I just think that's interesting that we're just basically – no idea is um, off the table right now as we try to come up with very viable candidates. No, and if you look at flu block, I mean, that was an insect vaccine, so um... – so, yeah, we're looking at all sorts of technology with this. Well, we greatly appreciate you uh, um, taking time out of your busy schedule to share your insight with us and uh, help educate our listeners because this is definitely um, not an easy topic to always get your head around. And um, there's a lot of information, and we know we have to prepare everybody for a lot of the misinformation out there. So we really appreciate um, um, you coming on um, coming on of Illinois Farm Talk with us. But before we let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah, I, I think the one thing I think that is really important is that um, just accept the fact that it's going to be a mess for a while we, because of, of how they're going to determine who gets the vaccine or how do you screen for the person that gets it. It's just not going to be real clear until it actually gets out there. So um, 
but the other thing too is that I highly encourage pharmacists to take an active role in being being once the vaccine's approved and proven that it's safe. I'm not asking anybody to take anything that's not safe, but once that's been shown that it is, and according to the news broadcast, we hear it is, um, then in fact, um, get in there, get the vaccine right away so that you're ready to be able to, to take care of the patients that's going to come in in the following phases, because I think that's where we're going to see a major role in pharmacy. Um, and also for pharmacists, not to forget, there are other vaccines that right now we are, are severely behind uh, in the population and getting their vaccines. The second dose of Shingrix, for example, or, or the pneumococcal vaccines, et cetera. Those are still very important. And uh, we need to make sure that we take the opportunity to give them. And this is the time to do it because of the fact that, that we, we don't have to do the, the COVID vaccine for a, another month or so. Make sure these other vaccines are caught up with your patients. Take the time to talk to them about it. Well, and I think that's a great point because you just, you know, we've, we didn't even touch on um, the great the great opportunity that pharmacists have to be able to show their value here in the immunization neighborhood with what um, HHS did with giving us expanded authority and allowing our technicians to also assist us as well with helping get get our patients caught back up as they've been in lo- various phases of lockdowns around the country and, and helping g- take care of the whole patient. I agree. And um, well, more to come. We'll see how, how this pans out, but it's uh, it is an exciting time. And it's, a, as you said, it's a great opportunity for pharmacists. It really is. And, and once again, I, I want to thank you uh, again, we're we're here listening to Dr. Stephen Foster. Uh, we've been talking about the COVID vaccine on Illinois Farm Talk. And Dr. Foster, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been great information. Uh, our listeners will benefit greatly from, from this talk. So thank you so much uh, for coming on Farm Talk. My pleasure. Joseph J. Bogdan, or Jay, is a pharmacist and an attorney. He received his PharmD from the University of Illinois and was a chief pharmacy prosecutor with the Illinois Department of Professional Regulation and has now been in his current practice for 20 years. Jay is an active member with the Illinois Pharmacists Association and currently serves as a regional director on the board of directors. If you are a pharmacy technician, pharmacist, or pharmacy owner who has been contacted or accused of a legal violation by the state board, DEA, PBMs, or any other agency, contact Jay at 630-310-1267. You can call a lawyer, or you can call a lawyer who knows pharmacy, because he is one of you. You can find more information about the Law Office of Joseph J. Bogdan on their website at www.jjblawoffice.com or call 630-310-1267. Again, 630-310-1267. Hello, I am Ben Calcaterra, and I want to let you know just how important it is to hold a membership in the Illinois Pharmacists Association. The Illinois Pharmacists Association stands up for all pharmacists across the state, from community to health system, academia to long-term care. Your membership will strengthen the efforts of the entire association. Consider joining today to gain valuable insights and updates about news and events affecting the profession of pharmacy in the state of Illinois. To gain educational opportunities such as CPEs and certificate training programs, or to help advocate to protect the abilities of pharmacists to practice in the best way they possibly can. Stand up for your profession, stand up for your state, and stand up for your patients. Join today. Call the office today or log on to IPHA.org. 
You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at IL Pharmacist. That's plural with the S, IL Pharmacists. And we're back from that break and uh, coming out of the interview with Dr. Stephen Foster, a uh, lot of information in there that we heard. I, I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to get the interview recorded in such a timely fashion because right now it's important that all the pharmacists across the state and across the nation, if, if you're outside of Illinois um, listening to our podcast, uh, right now is a very important time because a lot of the enrollment windows for pharmacies that want to provide the COVID vaccine, the enrollment windows are starting to close. The federal government has a deadline for enrolling to be a provider. So you want to make sure that if you have not picked a, a federal partner, some of the federal partners out there being CPESN, which Illinois with ICPIN is a partner of that. So, so our national CPESN um, affiliate is one of the federal providers. If you're a member of ICPIN, you're also a member of CPESN on the national side, so you can pick them as your federal provider. However, that window has already closed. So if you were able to get into their enrollment period, wonderful, good for you. Uh, there are some other federal programs. Some of the wholesaler groups and their PSAO groups have combined to make certain uh, partner affiliates. I know that HealthMart is one of them. Um, personally, I've been talking with HealthMart about getting into their enrollment window. As we record this, um, this portion of, of our podcast is being recorded on the 3rd of December. Their enrollment window for the second phase of enrolling, not phase two of the vaccination, but just the enrollment process. They had a, a first phase of a window, and, and now we're in the, the second phase of enrollment. It will close on the 9th of December at midnight. So uh, if you're a Health Mart pharmacy, uh, great news, you got an extra little window. However, if none of those apply to you or you don't want to go with them, you can still enroll through the state, which they call... The CDC is calling that your local jurisdiction. So you can do either a federal partner or the local jurisdiction. Our local jurisdiction is through iCare. You have heard Garth and I talk to you before about registering for iCare. There was a reason for that. Now it becomes um, blatantly obvious that you have to have an iCare membership to become a partner through the state to become a provider, I should say, to administer the COVID vaccination. So, eye care takes a while. If you have not registered for eye care, do not pass go. Go to your computer, start a registration for eye care immediately because you cannot become a provider of the COVID vaccination without being registered for eye care. It is one of the requirements that you report to eye care, which is our state registry, within 24 hours of providing the vaccination. You cannot wait. You cannot delay within 24 hours. So not only do you have to register for eye care to become a provider and, and, and uh, fill out their enrollment package to become a state local jurisdiction provider, you also have to have enrolled in eye care regardless of who you picked as your provider. If you go through HealthMart, if you go through CPSN, if you go through somebody else, you still have to, as a CDC requirement, 
be registered with iCare to report. And not only to report, to be able to order the vaccine as well. All that's going to be handled through iCare as well. That's right. That's right. So um, within iCare, if you need to report on your state jurisdiction, if you log into iCare, at the very top of the page, you'll see your site. Uh, You can click on your site name, and then there will be a tab that says COVID. Click on the tab that says COVID and then begin the process. They've got documents there to step you through what the uh, enrollment package looks like, uh, what you need to know, the requirements that you have to read through and certify that you agree to and understand. Um, Real quick, let's just go through some of those requirements because if if you're considering and and you haven't gotten into that, uh, let's talk about some of them here. Uh, Number one, Organization must administer COVID-19 vaccine in accordance with all requirements and recommendations of CDC and CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. How timely that number one is referring to the interview we just had about how ASIP works and, and tells us how we're doing things. Well, that's point number one. Point number two I just covered. Within 24 hours of administering a dose, you have to report to your state registry. That's eye care. 24 hours is the window. Number three and number four, you can kind of combine together. You cannot seek any additional reimbursement or payments for any of the products. Uh, The only thing that you can recover in a fee or a price is the administration fee, which is a set amount, may be um, negotiated based on region from Medicare, uh, Medicaid, um, but... But you cannot ask a patient to pay, and you cannot ask for payment for any of the ancillary products like the syringe, the alcohol pad, your PPE, uh, any of that stuff is, is off the table. You, it's severe fines if, if you start to charge people for things. However, what we can do is um, assume that the administration fees that we will be paid, whether it be from a commercial payer, an employer, or from the government with Medicare and Medicaid services. Those amounts may be finalized later, um, but, but we know they're going to be about uh, 24-ish dollars um, for your final vaccination. If it's a single dose, that's what you're going to get. If it's a multi-dose, that will be the final dose. And somewhere in the mid-teens for the first second, third dose, however many doses you need to get up to that final. So let's say it's a three-dose series. You would get mid-teens for the first two and like 24-ish bucks for the last one, if that makes sense. Most of the ones we're seeing are going to be two doses. You're going to get one mid-teen, one 24-ish for both both, uh, doses there. That's all you're getting. You can't charge for the ingredient. You cannot charge anybody for the ingredient. Remember, the government's giving this to you for free, so you can't charge anybody for that. It's just the administration fee. And then number five says that for each recipient, they're going to get either an emergency use authorization fact sheet, which is looking like what it's going to be for each manufacturer's vaccine uh, until the FDA approves some other means of communication here about the, the vaccines. And then we might get... Uh, the standard VIZ sheet or a vaccine information statement, but it looks like the EUA fact sheet's what it's going to be, but no different than what we're giving a a patient now as far as they get a an information sheet of some sort every time they get the vaccine. So 
you're still in the same business mode of handing them paperwork after the vaccine. Nothing changes. So jumping down to number seven, we're going to talk about the handling requirements. Um, They call it the requirements for COVID-19 vaccine management. Uh, This includes the storage and handling of the vaccine under proper conditions. Now, remember, we've had a lot of talk about storage, cold storage, ultra cold storage that is um, going to be an inhibiting factor for some pharmacies and providers uh, for some of the vaccines, right? So one of them that's coming out early is going to be the ultra cold. Um, We're looking at that being that phase one vaccine for the long-term care providers that that are going to get in the early stages. If you're able to do that, great for you. Most of us in the retail world are focusing on phase two, and that's not going to be the ultra cold. It's going to be, let's just call it medium cold, um, cold storage, though. I mean, we're talking negative 25 here, and um, we're going to have to have a standalone freezer. Okay, so organization must monitor vaccine storage unit temperatures at all time using equipment and practices that comply with guidance and CDC's uh, vaccine storage and handling toolkit. So what we're talking about here is you've got to have a data logger. Okay, you have to monitor that data logger. It has to be in accordance with CDC, which also in their toolkit says you have to have a data logger and a backup data logger that have to be certified, okay? You have to have a certified compliance sheet um, within a time period. So when you buy these data loggers, they'll say you have two years of compliance or you have a three-year compliance or a a one-year certification or whatever it says, make sure you don't exceed those guidelines. If you have to uh, recertify, you have to recertify. Moving on down, we've got um, management of your inventory. You're going to have to report in iCare that you've, uh, what your inventory is. So when you receive the vaccine, that's part of it. You have to have, in the application, you have to, uh, it, it talks about personnel being trained to receive the vaccine. That also means they have to input that that receiving of the vaccine into eye care as inventory. So eye care knows you have received it. They are monitoring in real time how many doses are out there and where they are. So when you give a shot, also in eye care, you actually pick out of your inventory when you log it into a patient. So it removes that from your inventory within eye care. I know, little double work here because you've got your pharmacy system inventory, you've got your eye care inventory, but Hey, this, this is what it is. You got to do it. These are the rules. So manage your inventory in eye care, including disposal. If you have an expired or a wasted lot, you have to go expire that in eye care or, or dispose of that in eye care. You've got to remove it from your inventory. So don't forget that. Moving down to number 10, we've got the VARES reporting. Um, VARES is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. We have all been told about the VAERS system. When you go through immunization training, you learn about the VAERS system. But how many of you have actually used it? Honestly, it's probably the most underused system that we have for the wrong reasons. It is not a burden, and it is not a mark against you if you go in and log that you have a patient that had a sore arm after you gave a vaccine. It's not that. This is used to aggregate data so we can use it for uh, extended studies to know what's going on in the world. How do we know that we're, 
we are having an increased sight redness, uh, you know, 50 times more than some other vaccine unless we report those adverse events. Number 11, uh, the, the record card. So we should be in the habit of giving a vaccine uh, record to each patient that, that, that we give vaccines to. Some pharmacy systems do a great job of making this easy and simple. Some don't. Um, but even if you go to immunize.org, they have the uh, vaccine record cards that you can download and, and print out, uh, fill in for your patients so they have a record to take home with them. With COVID, this is now mandatory. In the initial supply kit that you will receive from either the government or direct from the manufacturer, if that's how you get it, um, it looks like it's going to be coming authorized by the CDC, distributed by McKesson as the primary wholesaler for all of this. But in the CDC toolkit, they actually mention an option about coming direct from manufacturers. So I'm going to talk about both. Either way, you will get an initial supply of all your supplies that you need to do the vaccinations. We're talking the syringes. We're talking the alcohol pads, Band-Aids, PEP for yourself. Um, all of that stuff comes so you don't have to purchase it. It's being given to you. In that tool kit or supply kit, I should say, is going to be 100 vaccine record cards that you are required to use to give to the patient to report that you have given them a COVID shot. Um, now, once you've given 100 shots, it's a little unclear right now what you do after that point. Do you have to order more? Is that on you? Is there going to be a system? I would hope that they would have a system in place by then to get you more supplies. Um, you know, a lot of this thing is going to be a, a in motion sort of a situation where we might not know until we get close to the, that 90th shot of, of how to do this. Um, a lot of wheels are still moving here. So bear with them. I'm sure they'll figure it out by then. But, but right now we just don't know. Back on point, you have to give them a vaccine record. Fill it out every time. Give it to them. A great suggestion was made last night in our town hall, and, and Garth will talk about this later, um, so you can go listen to it yourself. But once you make a vaccine card, tell the patient to take a picture of it on their phone, and then they've got a record of it in case they lose that card, misplace it, set it under papers, accidentally throw it away. You've got it on your phone. You know people don't erase their pictures from their phone very often, so they're more likely to carry that around with them and have it accessible when they need it. And lastly, we'll, we'll talk about number 12. Follow all the rules. All the rules. This is not one of those times that we want to kind of follow the rules but, but, but overlook some of the details, okay? Every little detail needs to be followed at this point. Make sure your CPR is up to date. Make sure that you have your NABP profile up to date saying that you're an immunizer. Make sure your MPI website or, or profile says that you're an immunizer. Make sure Medicare's uh, got your, your PTAN registration as a mass immunizer. That will come in handy, trust me. Make sure all of the things are done because all eyes are on us. 
we have an opportunity to show the world of healthcare and the public in general that we can do it. We can do this. They need us. We've been saying that they need us all along. Now they're giving us an opportunity to show our worth and our value. Let's not screw it up, guys. Let's do it right. So with all those requirements, you know, that is kind of like this ball over here on this side of the table of what you got to do to get going. Now we've got another decision to make, right? So you've got how many flu shots that were in your wholesaler's inventory that you had to pick from in, in pre-order back in March, you know, which flu shot do you want? Which one's best? Which one's not better? Which one's the, going to give you the most reimbursement? Which one's for the three-year-olds or the 12-year-olds? All those decisions when you're comparing all these flu shots, well, now we've got COVID shots. How are you going to compare those? They haven't even hit the market yet. So there's a lot of information coming out every day. We're learning new information about the, the upcoming COVID vaccines and, and which ones differ and how they're made and how they're going to get into the body and this new mRNA and all this info. And we had a great topic discussion just the other night. Garth, tell us about that. Thanks, Ben. And on this past Wednesday, on December 2nd, uh, we had our monthly IPHA member town hall. And um, if you're if you're not attending those, every the first Wednesday night of every month, uh, we will have our um, open town halls. And, and they've been focusing, of course, on to- COVID topics. And this came out of COVID, where we were having weekly town halls in the um, early parts of the pandemic. But getting back to Wednesday night, uh, uh, Dr. Miranda Wilhelm, who's our IPHA vice president, and she's a clinical professor at SIUE, and a regular um, lecturer on immunization practices, she stepped us through the the current vaccine candidates and um, the differences between all of them, their mechanisms of action, and what we know of the data at this time, and really stepping through and preparing you and educating you on how each of these vaccines work, and so we can start to answer some of these questions. And I really encourage you to go back and take a look and listen to that entire presentation. And if you go on YouTube, or Facebook, Twitter, and we'll have it on our uh, webpage later on tomorrow, um, we have the, um, uh, it's on YouTube right now, we have our um, recording of that town hall. In addition, I go through a number of um, additional vaccine preparation steps. Ben just stepped you through all the requirements that you're going to need to um, qualify through the CDC. The state's additionally asking for your assistance in a couple other areas and making sure that you are completely connected. And the biggest one is making sure that you're part of SIREN. And you may have heard of SIREN before, um, especially from physicians or in hospitals. And this is the state's health um, health action network where they're able to communicate to providers and they're including pharmacists now specifically on for immunizations. In addition, you know, we've been talking for over three years specifically to community pharmacies about connecting with your local health departments in, in preparation for a public health emergency. Well, now we're in one, and we wanted, we, we've been encouraging pharmacists to become part of medical reserve corps and also to volunteer under Illinois Helps. And Illinois Helps is the state's volunteer management system. And this is going to be important because in addition to our um, daily work in our pharmacy practices, 
we may be asked to assist the local health departments and governments, municipal governments, in doing community clinics. And so you may be asked to either uh, be a vaccinator or to be a supervisor, so or helping um, supervise a number of students. And so we're looking at, you know, operating and, and uh, bringing in all of our students and, and nursing students, med students, and even pharmacy technicians. And we're even talking now about the dental schools as well and making sure that everybody is available in our communities because it's going to take all of us. And as Ben said, the spotlight is on us, and we really need to make sure that we're stepping up now because we've been handed the baton to help get Illinois and get our country back on its feet. Pharmacy's been asked to help, been asked to step to the very front of the line, and this is our moment to shine. So please do take a look at that Illinois Helps. Please fill out the eye care and all the other forms that's being required by your various wholesalers. I know there's a lot of paperwork, and and unfortunately it has to be this way for right now. And as we said in the town hall and we've alluded to here, please pay attention to every bit of information. We're going to have a lot of farm flashes or vaccine flashes over the next weeks. And so if you're listening to this right now and you're in Illinois and you're not an IPHA member, this is the time. We will have most of the information is going to be sent out to the member network only um, because that's that's the, the our audience that we have to take care of first. Uh, we will have some information out publicly, but we have to make sure that um, we're getting the communication to our members. So this is the time to sign up, be a part of IPHA. Um, if you're not, in, if you're listening to this and you're not in Illinois, get part, make sure you're part of your state's network and make sure that you're part of all your state's public health and, um, pharmacy medical reserve Corps opportunities as well. This is a time for pharmacy to help. Our public needs us. Our country needs us. You said it well, Garth. Yes, we are in the spotlight and, uh, we need to do everything that we can right now and do it right and do it well. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, we've covered a lot. We've covered how the vaccines have been uh, put through the vetting process. We've covered how our providers across the state are going to become vaccine providers of the COVID vaccine. Um, we've given you information on the town hall to to go watch about what the differences are and, and what the vaccines are are themselves, uh, how to differentiate between them. And I think that we are preparing ourselves for a great uh, new chapter in pharmacy uh, in, in the nation, in our state, in our communities. We are about to really step foot on that pedestal, uh, not egotistically, but for the right reason of saying, hey, we've been shouting from our rooftop that we are here and ready for so long, and now we are able to do what we are prepared to do, uh, what we were schooled to do, what we've been trained to do, and what we have been doing under cover <laughs> inside the pharmacy for so many years. Here we are. Our time is now. So let's do our our communities proud uh, our nation proud and be the best pharmacist that we can be. So I think uh, that's going to about do it for us today, Garth. Is, is there anything else that, that we haven't covered? 
No, just I know we've given you guys a lot of homework tonight, so uh, please get to it right away. Uh, we, we need you to get up to date and be ready to go. Absolutely. Well, that's been a good episode, so uh, let's wrap it up here. Thanks, Garth. Thank you, Ben. And thank you to our listeners and our sponsor, the Law Office of Joseph J. Bogdan, for supporting this show. Check back regularly to hear new episodes, as we will keep you updated on legislative matters happening around the state. You can find us on the internet at IPHA.org, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as IL Pharmacists. That's plural, with the S, IL Pharmacists. Follow us today to stay in the know. That will do it for this installment of Illinois Farm Talk. Stay tuned for our next chapter as the Voice for Pharmacy in Illinois brings you another edition of Illinois Farm Talk. Thank you for listening to the Illinois Farm Talk podcast. 